Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing on this Monday. I'm Brian Curtis. The services sector in China rises in April. Warren Buffett holds court in Omaha. U.S. stock and bond markets give a kind of thumbs down to the jobs report. Ukraine weighed in as well on that. Uh, And Portugal exits the bailout and says, we don't need your credit line. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. And the New York Times has a cute headline out this morning on a Reuters story. China unleashes Yuan bears, but can it cage them again? So we get at a couple of interesting and key questions this morning. The uh, renminbi downturn, is it now not just a short-term move, but rather perhaps a deeper shift in the market? And why did a seemingly good U.S. jobs report fall flat on the biggest voting machines in the world? Again, that being the U.S. stock and job markets. Here are a couple of comments to get us started. These strong headlight numbers, it's good to see the unemployment rate come down, and it's even better to see the most vulnerable segments of population doing better this is a this is a good to very good report you're seeing robust um, robust jobs growth employers are hiring more you're seeing some positive revisions but and there's a big but we're all focused and talking about that uh, very strong increase in total employment total jobs but on the other hand we have a situation where we gain jobs but lost workers uh, when we tout the fact that the unemployment rate plummeted, uh, what we have to do is acknowledge that it plummeted because over 700,000 individuals gave up job search. So why did so many people just give up? As James Prisling of Bloomberg there and the earlier commentator Mohammed El Arian. Guest on the program this morning, Mark Matthews of Bank Julius Baer. He'll be joining us for his bullish call on China. Hong Kong-based columnist for Barron's, Shuli Ren, will join us to talk about Alipay and Alibaba and other things tech. And also for his perspective on global markets, we'll have our regular Monday morning chat with Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. This interesting note, Portugal will follow Ireland in exiting its three-year bailout program, and it will not seek a credit line. Portugal last month held its first bond auction since requesting the 78 billion euro rescue. It went well. The exit leaves Greece as the sole euro area country still in a bailout regime some four years after it called for outside aid in May of 2010. Now we switch briefly to the United States. Uh, As you mentioned, the 288,000 jobs created in April was seen as a little bit ho-hum to markets. We had a we had a pretty tough first quarter in terms of the weather. You'd expect growth, and growth is improving, and you expect to have a stronger number at some point. So it's a stronger number. That being said, you know we continue to hold to our view that you still have a structural problem with unemployment, and you and you still have that. And we would argue today the monetary policy is not is not fixing it per se, and then excessively low rates really doesn't doesn't in fact help. So the participation rate dropping means that so many people are are dropping out of the jobs market. They're simply giving up. They've either been out of a job for so long that they don't have the skills to go back in or they're just depressed and dejected and disinclined to actually look for a job. We hear more now about another uh, portion of all of this with Bill Gross at PIMCO. 
I think there are two, two parts to this puzzle. Yes, uh, the employment uh, numbers are good. Yes, the unemployment rate's down partially because of that participation rate, as you pointed out. Uh, but importantly as well, the, we need to see, the Fed needs to see inflation you know, go up from 1.1% to their 2% target. You know, they need inflation at 2%. The employment numbers are great, but if uh, the employment numbers can't generate inflation at 2%, then right. you know, they're not moving off the dime. Let's say good morning to Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Barry, good morning. Good day to you. Good morning, Brian. So a lot of things to talk about. I mentioned Ukraine. I think that was as big a negative on Friday in Wall Street trading, perhaps as people's interpretations of the jobs report. The jobs report looked good on paper, but when you dig down below, there's a lot of things in there that um, caused a little a little bit of a pause in people's uh, approach. What was your take on the jobs numbers? Well, I think it's mixed. I think on balance, I think it's good because uh, you've got uh, well over 200,000, 288,000, uh, and you've had a 200,000 number for three consecutive months. That's a, that's a gathering storm. That is a good thing on job creation. So this is good for the U.S. economy. But, of course, the negative is, Brian, as you allude to, that, in fact, the uh, labor force the participation rate shrunk, and that meant that there were discouraged workers who were not going into the labor force. They just didn't even bother. There was, of course, that problem with the unemployment payments running out, and there were other people dropping out. So it's a mixed picture in that respect, but overall it's good. It seems, though, that um, with wages where they're at and with um, you know not a lot of uh, new jobs being created. You say it's quite good, but it's it's less on average than uh, what we saw for a big chunk of last year. Uh, we did have a, a pretty bad first quarter. I see more and more houses now are actually suggesting the U.S. might have contracted. We saw a report from Barclays, and now also the Reorient Group is saying that the U.S. economy probably contracted in the first quarter. With wages um, flat and that happening, um, is it possible that companies are just not going to be that inclined to hire more people well i think that's true you know our uh, our, our competitive uh, labor costs unit labor costs have come down so much in the united states we're a much more competitive economy for all of those negatives that you just outlined uh we're just not needing as many people to produce as much product but i think the federal reserve is of the view brian that the economy is improving and that they're seeing much stronger prospects for the second quarter of the year than that uh, very difficult report for the first quarter. So I'm, I'm not pessimistic because, first of all, I think the Fed has got so much data, and those economists are optimistic, and so am I. Doesn't it make you feel uncomfortable, though, that the bond market uh, is is telling you a, a story that uh, doesn't actually suggest that in, that inflation is coming, which Bill Gross said is, is sort of needed uh, if you want to see the Fed get back to normal interest rates, and that the yield on the 10-year has dropped so far, you know, around 2.60%, coming from 3.03 at the beginning of the year, that it suggests that there really isn't much growth and there isn't much inflation. There's really nothing to get excited about in terms of investing. Well, that's true. I mean, look, uh, who would have thought that the 10-year bond would be at 2.60 when, in fact, several months ago, it was close to 3. So, you know, maybe some of the euphoria we felt, although that's too strong a term, some months ago has now been tempered to the extent that we're all 
forget it was Bill Gross and Mohammed El Arian who invented this term. What was the new normal? It was 1% to 2% annual growth. So, you know, I think the United States overall in 2014 will register closer to 3 but that assumes a lot of good things, and I suspect that you're suggesting that's not probably going to be the case. I know that you're normally sunny, so I have to take the devil's advocate. <laughs> Um, but I do read I read a lot of these reports that uh, have a negative outlook. They say you can forget about three percent growth because what you've seen so far means that you're going to have to see growth uh, to the high side of four percent. And there's nothing in anybody's numbers that suggests that's what's going to happen. I mean, uh, well, Brian, I, you're right. But let's not forget the things that are really going well. And I think you have to start with automobiles. Automobiles are selling in the United States at over 16 million annual rate, and we haven't really got into the peak buying season. You can look at the statistics that say that there's going to be many more car sales because the average age of cars on the road is really quite old, historically very old. So that's good. Housing is the one that's been the disappointment. And here with low interest rates, you would think that housing would be going gangbusters. But in fact, Maybe this is the penalty or the effect of punishing the banks. It's very hard for people to get loans. That's the problem in housing. It's not that uh, there isn't inventory or there isn't interest. It's that people are having trouble getting loans. So if there's anything that would temper my optimism, it is housing. But I think in terms of exports, the manufacturing sector, particularly autos, consumer confidence, certainly asset prices, that's all positive. I guess we should say that, uh, you know, there's a mixed nature to the data and you wouldn't want to go too far out on the line, I suppose, until the mixed part clears up and you get some sort of definitive direction. But you said a couple of things last week that I thought were really sharp. Uh, one having to do with Russia and Ukraine saying that, uh, you know, this pretty much dispels the notion that we've had for the past 10 or 12 or 15 years that Russia was was basically trying to join the G7 and uh, join the the current world order, whatever that is. Uh, and you also said that it seemed that the stock market was going to break either way. I would posit to you now that it's becoming more likely that the U.S. stock market breaks to the downside. Tell me I'm wrong. No, I won't tell you you're wrong. And there's, there's a very interesting piece by one of the Wall Street analysts that I like to read who says that uh, both the optimists and the negative people want a correction because it's just gone too long without any kind of correction. But in terms of that reference to seven days ago, we've seen again a flat movement in the market. So the market still can't make up its mind if it's going to break on the upside or break on the downside. I think if it broke on the downside for a 5 to 10% correction, probably everyone would say this is a useful thing, and maybe they would even attribute it to Ukraine. But no, I can't give you the I can't give you the scenario that says you're wrong because I think probably you may be right. And is there a new world order now that Russia does not want to play ball with the West? You know, this is this is strange. I, I, I'm still a little bit of an iconoclast on Russia. Uh, I think that uh, Ukraine has always been a very uh, separate part of the puzzle vis-a-vis the rest of the former Soviet Union. You know, they could lose the Baltics and not really shed a tear. They could allow the Eastern European satellites to go into the European Union and NATO and not shed a tear. But Ukraine is different. 
I think uh, Russia is playing, first of all, a very uh, dangerous game. Secondly, a very dishonest game. Clearly, they're behind all of this unrest. We know that. But the fact is, I hold to what I said a week ago, Brian. They don't want to invade. They want to destabilize the country so that the election can't go forward in a way that is internationally acceptable. And then they can come along and say, see, we've got a problem with Ukraine. Let's figure out what kind of government Ukraine should have. Whereas the argument used to be, well, let the Ukrainians decide. But as we've seen in the last week, and I'm sure that Mr. Putin is wringing his hands in glee, the Ukrainians can't control the eastern part of the country, no matter who's behind the unrest. All right, back to um, you know the U.S. economy and Warren Buffett, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, holding court uh, in Omaha. You went um, interested in your perceptions of of how Warren Buffett is doing. Uh, he struggled a little bit here of late, down uh, under the um, the index, uh, you know, matched up against the S and P. Four out of five years, uh, a little trouble with his position on the Coke um, reimbursement plan for the executives. He seems under a little more fire than he used to be. How is his mood over the week? Oh, I think his move was very upbeat. And uh, yes, all the things you just said are correct. But on balance, I mean, let me throw this at you. He made, in the course of 2013, in his shareholdings of Berkshire Hathaway A shares, the ones that cost all that money, he made $13 million every day. So his net worth increased by $5 billion in the course of 2013. I was interested, peering down from that darkened press gallery at the arena in Omaha, and you saw Warren Buffett walk up with, uh, with, with Charlie Munger and sit at that table, and then they introduced the others, and there was Bill Gates. So you had Bill Gates and, and, and Warren Buffett, who collectively are one in two in terms of the richest people on the planet. You ask about his mood. Very upbeat very pro-administration. He says that American business has never had it so good. He praised Bernanke, he praised Yellen. He said that, in fact, quantitative easing stimulated the economy and boosted asset prices. I think he's pretty optimistic and very active. He is so big. He says his biggest problem, and Munger agrees, in running Berkshire, they've got too much money. They've got so much money, and they give it all away, let's not forget that, that they can't really move in the market and buy companies because they're perceived as, as giants. Okay. And so it limits their options in their view. All right. Thanks very much, Barry. We'll talk again next week. Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. <laughs> Well, the Chinese services industry index rose in April as the premier, Li Keqiang, was grappling with countering a slowdown in the economy. The non-manufacturing purchasing managers index up at 54.8 last month compared with 54.5 in March. The attack on yuan speculators has been successful. Traders no longer see it as a one-way bet. On Wednesday, it touched an 18-month low of 6.2676 per dollar, and uh, it's down about 3% from its peak. Markets closed for the holidays uh, this past week. We're joined now by Mark Matthews, head of research for Asia at Bank Julius Baer. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Brian. Great to have you back on the program. Uh, I see that you have uh, been uh, sticking to your bullish call on China uh, this year, uh, uh, Chinese equities. Um, are you more bullish on Chinese equities or just reform in the economy? 
Well, they're hand in hand, so I couldn't like one without the other. Most people would say they're um, you know inver- in inverse relationship. That the more they reform, the worse the market performs. Yeah, I know. Well, there's a question of time horizon. I mean, I my call is really uh, not a short term one. It's an 18 month call. But I uh, tell you with a fairly high degree of confidence that I think the market will probably be about 50 percent higher. Uh, in 18 months than it is now. I think it's um, time to buy, start buying China. And I tell people if I had $10, I'd put three into China. So it's a it's a big um, call. Yeah, but I wouldn't but put all three in at once. I'd I buy have a this dollar is, worth now, a dollar in the second half, and the dollar at the beginning of next year. The discussion with a lot of people is, yeah, but it's dead money then for six, eight, 10, 12 months. Why put it in now? Well, because who really can consistently make good investment uh, returns on a six-month view? I mean, that's I know that we're all programmed to try to recommend uh, investments that way, but it's just not possible. And you're talking about Charlie Munger and Bill Gross and Warren Buffett and all those very famous, successful U.S. investors. I can guarantee you they don't take six-month views. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's a very important point that um, you don't know when these reforms will kick in. And people, when they're buying stocks, are generally looking out. Now, in terms of the reform, are, are you saying that it's the assets that these state-owned enterprises hold that perhaps will be sold off to the private sector and that that's why you benefit or that the reform inside the enterprises themselves will lead to much higher profits? It's the latter, uh, Brian. It's the latter. But actually, the former uh, as well, to a certain degree, we've seen, for example, Citic Group announced that it wants to sell its parent assets into Citic Pacific listed here in Hong Kong, which uh, should tra- provide much greater transparency to, to that company. But really, uh, the the uh, idea in my head is that there is no correlation between GDP growth and stock market performance anywhere in the world, including China. That is a very peculiar thing. Uh, Vietnam and China with uh, about the fastest growth in a, in a while and yet uh, the worst performing stock markets. The U.S. terrible um, growth really the past few years and outstanding uh, market performance. So why do we pay attention to economic data, Mark? Well, I guess it's just the, the biggest number, isn't it? I mean, GDP growth is, is the biggest economic uh, number in the world. But it, in fact, there were three uh, professors in the U.S. who did a study, uh, I believe it was late last year, and they found there were 21 countries where the data exists for both GDP growth and stock market performance going back to the year 1900. So that's 113 years of data. And Brian, um, you know, wh- where I'm telling you, I-, I don't think the two are correlated is because it's statistically proven by these three professors that, in fact, the relationship is inverse. So does that mean um, that liquidity is more important than economic growth. And well, you've li- seen a lot of liquidity. When economies struggle, you get more liquidity. No, I mean, uh, well, how do you define stimulus. liquidity? What, well, what I, drives I share stimulus. prices? Uh, m- no. Banks uh, printing money. No. What drives share prices is the cash flow of the companies they generate anywhere in the world. And so if a company produces more cash flow, its share price will eventually go up. So this brings me to an interesting point, and I have to credit you for making it, that um, if you look inside the uh, industrial production, you saw actually um, probably a downturn in terms of uh, of the increased output, but higher profits. So sales weren't so good, but profits were better. That shows you that they're restructuring, reorganizing, getting more productive. Well, I'm crossing my fingers that this is the first 
actual piece of evidence of um, what we're talking about, which is reform uh, making these big state-owned enterprises more efficient and therefore more cash flow generative. But I really don't know. But I'm hoping, and, and just to clarify, what happened was in the first quarter of this year, industrial revenues, uh, the growth fell over the fourth quarter, but industrial profits, the growth rose. Um, and so the only way that could happen is if the profit, uh, the margins are expanding. And steel looked better than a lot of other industries. Where's, where's that steel going? Uh, Brian, that I can't answer. Sorry, didn't didn't get a chance to really drill maybe, down maybe on it's, steel. Maybe it's you know, it's steel and cement and glass was all doing well. So uh, maybe it's the um, low cost housing that they're trying to to build. Uh, maybe Shuli knows uh, sitting next to you, but um, uh, who knows what it went into? But it, it's a fact that steel, uh, cement, and glass just seem to be doing better than some of the other industries. Well, I. Um well, wait, I, uh, I hope no. and I think that you know a lot of these companies in China um, have just been very badly run over the last 10 years, silver spooned with high rates of GDP growth, uh, first dibs on loans, first dibs on all the projects. And essentially, there's, there's just a lot of fat that can be cut out of them. And there is a lot of corruption going on inside them. Okay, briefly. So, uh, you know, you're pretty general, it sounds like, from what you're saying. Uh, can you be more specific? Are you buying like an uh, ETFs that reflect uh, 40 or 50 companies? Or are you buying individual companies? I would buy the worst companies. I would buy like the four worst state-owned enterprises. And I won't name them because that's very cruel, but I'd buy two big industrials and two big banks. I can tell you one, China Costco, uh, I've, I've followed it quite closely. I think from a peak of about 38 or 40 down to three. Well, um, uh, that that's could be something one could consider. That's the idea, basically, is yeah. that companies that have been very badly run will be a little less badly run going forward. Okay. You know, I'm so pressed on time. I'm going to have to let you go. So much more to talk about, Mark, but uh, this is just a 27-minute program, so thank you. Well, thank you, Brian. Mark Matthews, Head of Research for Asia at Bank Julius Baer. Say good morning to Shuli Ren, Hong Kong-based columnist at Barron's, with a lot of interesting stuff happening with Alibaba and Alipay. Now, this is very interesting, and also we're waiting to see uh, what the what, what's going to happen with the IPO, Shuli. Do you have a strong view? Is it coming soon? Well, um, it should be. Well, th- uh, first of all, thank you, uh, Brian, for having me here. Uh, so we are expecting Alibaba to file the first firings in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so hopefully, yeah, it should be. And is this little twist with um, trying to get Alipay, uh, the payment services provider, back into Alibaba. It was separated out ostensibly because it needed to get a uh, uh, need to please the regulatory authorities for getting a license to deal in financial services. So Jack Ma said it should be private. Now he's taking it back in. Can you clear us up on that? Will the regulators say that's okay? I think so. But, uh, Brian, this is a manifestation of what's happening with the U.S. stock market or or the global stock market in general, the big rotation from the growth stocks to value stocks, right? Like uh, since early March, all the high growth stocks, biotech, tech, uh, Macau, for example, they've been down like 20%, right? Or more. Or more, yeah. Yeah. Some of the companies are way down. Last time I was here, you you mentioned four game. They're down uh, 30% or something? No, they're down almost 50%. 
okay. I know because I bought it at 60 and uh, of course I put a 10% stop loss. So I dumped it at 55. It was at 30 the other day, I think. You know, it's people something. like you who put the stop losses, you know, that exacerbate the, the sell-offs. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people, you know, just be careful, not so committed. Uh, the run-up was extraordinary. Uh, look at Kingsoft, 3888 yeah. for people. At one point, it was up like 400% in a year. You know, that, that's... That that's bordering on the ridiculous. Yeah, uh, precisely. So so like I mean, um, to give Alibaba credit, it's very hard to time IPO, especially for 150 billion dollars. That that's the number that's being thrown around, right? So so like now the stock market is not doing that well. People are not they they're giving uh, uh, investors are giving those high growth stocks second looks. So what Alibaba is doing is they're trying to have a more asset rich IPO. Um, so um, earlier this year, uh, Carl Icahn he 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 took a, a stake in a, a eBay, if you recall, and he was trying to spin off PayPal, right? And the justification was that the PayPal is trading at a higher multiple uh, than uh, uh, eBay. So I was just looking at his uh, March open letter. He was saying that marketplace eBay's marketplace will be trading at the forty time, fourteen times forward PE. Okay, and PayPal trades at 22 times. And I think that's what Alibaba is trying to do exactly. By folding into Alipay, basically the equivalent of PayPal, it will help justify this 150 billion uh, valuation. And it just shows you that uh, people, investors just became becoming very skeptical of uh, high tech companies. Do you think that Alibaba delays um, due to this um, dramatic shift? I mean, this shift from growth into value is really one of the stories of the year. Uh, that's correct, and uh, I mean it's hard to say they can how much longer they can delay because uh, it's unclear that uh, we'll see the growth stocks coming back again. I think like uh, it was a, a study by Goldman just looking at the great rotation from from growth to value, right? And uh, most of the time, like uh, the they don't rotate back. Would you um, would you say though that the companies that have good solid earnings? Uh, who are, that are in that camp uh, stand a much better chance, obviously, than the ones that, you know, people just see growth out, say, four or five years. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, Baidu will be doing better than some other companies. Ten cents and other. I've mentioned in the past that many people own that, myself included. Uh, uh, it does have earnings. Um, it, it did. Uh, it did go up a lot, but uh, is that a company that you look favorably upon? I, uh, you know, I'm always a big fan of Tencent, and the one thing with Tencent is uh, it's in the index, MSCI index, right? So like uh, there, there's a flaw to the valuation. Like all the big uh, asset managers, they will be holding Tencent, but they wouldn't uh, be holding, for for example, necessarily like a four game or Kingsoft. What about the other growth uh, sector that made a lot of people money last year? Macau Gaming. Yeah, so Macau Gaming is another sector. I, I feel bad because every time I come on here, I, I like uh, Tencent and Macau Gaming, and it, it was sold off, uh, you know, the, the next week. But uh, Macau Gaming is getting a a, a lot of uh, investors uh, investor skepticism as well. And uh, uh, the last two weeks, it was the junket who took the money off, right? Like uh, the ten billion Hong Kong dollars, supposedly. Uh, so that that sold the sentiments a little bit. Okay. Um, wish I gave you more time. I always sing that song, but thank you very much. Thank you. Shuli Ren there, who is a Hong Kong-based columnist for Barron's, and that's the end of the program today.
Australian market higher this morning. I'm sorry I didn't give you too many of the numbers uh, in Asia. The ASX 200 up 16 points, third of a percent. Uh, looking around the region, though, some markets closed. Uh, not a lot of action, actually, at this moment. In um, in looking at currencies, the dollar-yen is 102.19. So that's the dollar weaker against the yen. The euro, 1.387 U.S. dollars. Gold, $1,301 an ounce. Money for nothing at 8.30. Back chat coming up next. Mainly cloudy in the weather today with some light rain. The maximum temperature, 24 degrees. The news with Etienne Lamy-Smith. Premier Li Keqiang has arrived in Ethiopia on the start of a four-nation tour of Africa, calling for deeper ties with China. Before his departure, Mr. Li acknowledged growing pains in China-Africa relations. The Premier has urged Chinese companies to abide by local laws, be accountable for the quality of their projects, and take responsibility for local communities. He'll also visit Nigeria, Angola and Kenya. Here's the BBC's Richard Hamilton. China has been criticised for extracting Africa's natural resources at all costs. It's also been accused of turning a blind eye to human rights abuses. For example, Beijing has been a staunch supporter of Sudan's President Omar al-Bashir, despite his indictment by the International Criminal Court for war crimes in Darfur. To counter these criticisms, Mr Li has stressed that Africa and China are equal partners and that his country is not pursuing colonialism, unlike Western